So again, good morning. Now, if you remember, one of the main reasons Israel wanted a king was to have someone that could lead them into battle and defeat their enemies. Whether, whether they did it effectively or not determined the success or failure of their rule. Now, without a doubt, Saul, the first king of Israel, proved himself an effective leader when he was empowered by God to defeat the Ammonites. Nevertheless, as we learned, as we learned last week, it takes more than just a winning outward, winning outward battles to be an effective leader. Inward battles must be fought and won as well. One evening, an elderly Cherokee brave told his grandson about a battle that goes inside people. My dear one, the battle between two wolves is inside of us all. One is evil, it's anger, envy, envy jealousy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority and ego, and ego. The other is good. It's joy, peace, love, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The grandson thought about it for a moment and then asked his grandfather, which wolf wins? And the old Cherokee replied, it's the one you feed. So my question to you this morning is, who do you feed? And how do you feed it? In the two chapters we're going to be covering this morning, they can be devoted to Saul's battles with the Philistines, who now reappear as Israel's main enemy. In chapter 13, which we'll get to first, we'll primarily focus on how the external pressures led to Saul's disobedience. And you'll see who he fed. And when we get to chapter 14, we're going to see how God used the faith of a prince to save Israel. Now, these, I hope that these two chapters will challenge you to, to really ask yourself this important question. Who do you trust? Who do you trust when the pressure of life, when the pressure of marriage, when the pressure of work, when the pressure of school, whatever it is, is just coming down on you? When the pressure of life has been turned up, who do you trust? So that's what I hope that today's message will challenge you to ask yourself. So before we get into chapter 13, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us. Lord God, thank you so much for that wonderful time of worship. Thank you for having us here, Lord. And yes, thank you even for that snow you gave us last week. Um, it was nice and it was a, it was a good uh, change of, of scenery and it was 
absolutely beautiful. Everything you make is beautiful, Lord. So now as we get into your word, Lord, we ask that you speak to us, Lord, clearly. We want to hear from you. We want to learn from you, Lord. We want to grow deeper in, in, in having in our relationship with you, Lord. Lord, challenge us this morning. Challenge us where we're weak, Lord, so that we can know them, know those weaknesses, understand them, and and do what is necessary to, to, to be strengthened in those areas, Lord. But we need you, Lord. So fill this room with your spirit, Lord, now as we get into your word, as we get into this message. Use me, Lord, uh, to, to speak your truth with no hesitation, with no reservations, Lord. Thank you so much for this morning again. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel 13. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. He chose 3,000 men from Israel for himself. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmach and in Bethel, and in Bethel's hill country. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. He sent the rest of the troops away, each to his given tent. Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison that was in Geba, and the Philistines and the Philistines heard about it. So Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, "Let the Hebrews hear." And all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison, and Israel is now repulsive to the Philistines. Then the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves and thickets among rocks and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and his troops were gripped with fear. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set out. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offerings. Just as he was, just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him, and Samuel asked, "What have you done?" Saul answered, "When I saw that the troops were deserting me, and you didn't come within the appointed days, and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought the Philistines." will now descend on me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, that the Lord, the Lord, the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established her reign over Israel. But now your reign will not endure. 
The Lord has found a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Then Samuel went from Gilgal to Gibeah in Benjamin. Saul registered the troops who were with him, about 600. Saul, his son Jonathan, and the troops who were with him were staying in Geba of Benjamin. And the Philistines were camped out at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from, from the Philistine camp in three divisions. One division headed towards Ophrah, the Ophrah road leading to the land of Shual. The next division headed towards Betharon road. The last division headed down the border road that overlooks, that looks out over the Zeboim Valley toward the wilderness. No blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So the Israelites went to the Philistines to sharpen their plows, mattocks, axes, and sickles. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for plows and mattocks, and one-third for the shekel, one-third of a shekel for the pitchforks and axes, and for putting a point on a cattle prod. So, on the day of battle, not a sword or spear could be found in the hand of any of the troops who were with Saul and Jonathan. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had weapons. All right, so overall, just in general, this chapter shows us how a Philistine problem led to Saul's disobedience and how the consequences of his sin ended up affecting his entire life. So this episode here opens with a statement of Saul's age and the number of years he reigned over Israel. During the first couple of years of his reign, Saul had established a standing army. And out of all the men who had enlisted, and you have to remember that if you, if you turn back a little bit, when he had fought the Ammonites, there was over 300,000, he had over 300,000 men. So that was about the number that had enlisted during that time. But out of those 300,000, he chose 3,000 men to fight with him and his son, Jonathan. Well, Jonathan took his detachment of 1,000 men and successfully attacked the Philistine, Philistine garrison in Gibeah. And all that war was now inevitable. Aware of this, Saul activated the men of Israel who he had sent home on reserve. However, they, many of them, most of them, got scared and began to hide. And some of them even began fleeing to enemy territory. They began deserting Saul. So seeing the enemy mobilizing and his army melting away, it now became a demoralizing blow for Saul. And each day that went by, the situation just got worse 
and worse. He could just see the numbers dwindling more and more. Well, there in Gilgal, Saul waited for Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice as he had been told to do so, as he told as he told that he would do in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. But on the seventh day, the day Samuel was to arrive, Saul couldn't wait any longer. He was just too anxious. He was just too overwhelmed with everything that was going on around him. The pressure just got too great. And he just couldn't wait until the end of the day. And so he unlawfully took on himself the priestly task of offering the community sacrifice, of coming to the Lord and offering that sacrifice. Now, I know that maybe he was wondering and maybe there are others who are wondering, why couldn't Samuel come sooner? Why couldn't he just, you know, just come on the third day, on the fourth day? Saul really needed him. Was he deliberately trying to make Saul fail? Or was he just reminding the new king who was really in control? The fact of the matter is that Samuel had nothing at all to gain if Saul failed. Whether he failed or succeeded, you know, Saul, it didn't matter to him because he knew that God would still be in control regardless of what happened in that battlefield. And furthermore, as chapter 10, verse 8 says, this meeting had been planned some two years prior, two years before, and no doubt Samuel had reminded Saul of it more than once. This rendezvous, this meeting, was the Lord's way of testing Saul's faith and patience. And ladies and gentlemen, many times the Lord will also put us in similar situations in order to test our faith and confidence in him. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 12 tells us, tells us that without faith and patience, we can't receive the Lord's promises. On the other hand, James chapter 1, verse 18, basically tells us that unbelief and impatience are marks of spiritual immaturity. So how do you handle situations that call for faith and patience? How you handle that will say a lot about the amount of trust you have in the words found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where it says, All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are, who are called according to his purpose. You see, until you learn to trust God and wait on his timing, you can't learn the other lessons he wants to teach you. Nor will he be able to nor will you be able to receive the blessings he has in store for you. Saul may have been, may have been a handsome, strong, 
and he may have been taller than all the other men, but if he didn't have a heart that was right with God, he didn't really have anything. It's one thing to be victorious when you're leading an army of over 300,000 men, like he did with the Ammonites. Yet it's quite another thing when you only have 600. But this is where faith comes in. Now, when Samuel did show up and found out that Saul had taken it upon himself to offer the sacrifice, he rebuked Saul with the words, you have been foolish because of what he did. Samuel went on to tell Saul that not only would his dynasty come to an end, but that he would also be replaced. That God had found a man after his own heart. Now, if you're wondering why the punishment was so severe, well, God's judgment on Saul must be seen in light of God's holiness. As in the instance of the people's careless handling of the ark in Beth Shemesh, so Saul had now violated the holy standards of the Lord in these two ways. Not only had he disobeyed what the law of Moses had said in Leviticus chapter 8 verses, I mean Leviticus chapter 6 verses 8 through 13, but he also had disobeyed the word of his prophet Samuel. Now it's also, you know, you read that verse and you you may be asking, like, what do you mean his dynasty would would reign forever, he would reign forever? And you may be wondering, like, wait, wait a minute. I thought it was David's, not, not Saul's. Well, the reality is Saul's dynasty, in a sense, could have lasted forever. You know, he, his family line, his, his, his entire bloodline could have, could have continued on until forever, for all of eternity. But this here in no way teaches that the rise of David's dynasty depended on the fall of Saul's. All Samuel said was that Saul's kingship would end and someone else's would begin. Now, after the incident with Samuel at Gilgal, Verses 16 through 18 informs us that while Saul and Jonathan were in Geba, the Philistines began their plan of attack at Michmash. As they looked around, there the enemy was, and there was no way of avoiding them. Now, in addition to being boxed in and not having enough men, what made the situation even worse for Saul was that his men weren't even properly equipped. So as you can see, the odds were absolutely stacked against the Hebrews, the Jews. And the future of her survival was hanging by a thread. And all they needed was a spark of hope. Well, this sets the stage for Jonathan's thrilling victory that we that we'll be reading about when we get to chapter first, uh, chapter fourteen. 
But first, let me mention this. In the way it functions or doesn't function, the church of Jesus Christ, the not just this church, but the entire church of Jesus Christ, the full body of Christ today may sometimes resemble Saul's army. But if we do, it's really our own fault. See, through his great work on the cross, our Lord has defeated every enemy. And his power is available to his people. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17 tells us that we have the armor and the weapons that we need. Furthermore, his word tells us all that we need to know about the strategy of the enemy and the resources we have in Christ. The only thing that he asks is that we trust him and obey his orders and he will help us win the battle. Again, let me read to you Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. There it says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Because, as it says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 47, the battle is the Lord's. Christian believer, you won't be able to defeat your spiritual enemies on your own or with your own strength to ensure absolute victory you must be equipped strengthened and led by God Spurgeon said this now if our Lord and Master selected the Word of God let us not hesitate for a moment but grasp and hold fast this one true weapon of, of the saints in all times. Cast away the wooden sword of carnal reasoning. Trust not in human eloquence, but arm yourself with the solemn declaration of God who cannot lie. And you need not fear Satan and all his hosts. Jesus' selection is the best weapon. What was best for him is best for you. Also as believers, as Christians, we can, we can learn a lot from the subtle, we can learn a lot of subtle lessons of faithful obedience that lie just beneath the surface of this chapter. Saul was blessed with the Spirit of God, and even exemplified God's power in his life during the war with the Ammonites, which was really no different than the one he faced here. But even all this isn't enough to make him faithful in obedience to God's Word. When threatened with apparent defeat, and his enemies pressing from every direction, he personally takes charge. Does that sound familiar? Do you ever do the same thing? The pressure's on. Do you just say, okay, Lord, I got this. I'll take it. It's the only way I can survive. Rather than being patient and relying for, 
on God for direction, what does he do? He begins to act like all the other kings around him. A good example of this is when he goes against the explicit, explicit directives of God and trusts his own ability to lead and win the favor of God. There were three main factors that led Saul to sin. First of all, he allowed the circumstances of his current crisis to overtake him. Secondly, he committed himself to partial obedience when he failed to follow his commitments to God through the end. And thirdly, and here, and with this, we arrive at the heart of the matter when Samuel is confronted is confront, when Samuel confronted Saul with his infraction, he fails to accept responsibility. If we're, not, if we're not careful, these same factors can lead us to sin. When we're, especially when we're confronted with challenging circumstances. So unlike Saul, we must turn to God for help and guidance and not allow whatever crisis is at hand to overtake us. Have you lost your car or job? Is your marriage in shambles? Have your kids walked away from the Lord? I can go on and on with these kind of questions of crisis situations, but I think you understand what I'm saying or what I'm asking. But if so, don't allow those circumstances to overtake you and don't try to fix it on your own. Don't try to go out and fix that problem on your own because you can't. Come to the Lord and allow Him to guide you through it. Think about those times that he led you out through really hard situations because you trusted in him, because you waited on him, because you let, allowed him to guide you. So if he did that for you then, he will continue to do that for you now. It may take a little bit more time than you hoped and that you expected, but he will guide you through it if you just seek him out, if you just wait for him, if you don't take, if you just don't allow those things, those, that crisis to overtake you. We're told in Psalm chapter 32, verses 6 through 8, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. And then the Lord says in verse 8, I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Unlike Saul, we must follow through in our commitments to God. 
and avoid partial obedience. I want you to take a moment to consider the things, all the things that you've already committed to the Lord, and then ask yourself, have I followed through with them? Am I obeying? Am I really being committed to that? Or have I been partially obedient? If it's the former, if it's the first one, if you have kept your commitment to the Lord and you're following Him, you're enduring, if you're just obeying the Lord, then keep enduring, keep going. Don't give up, even when things get hard. Continue to trust Him and obey Him. You will be rewarded in the end. Now, if it's the latter, partial obedience isn't obedience. It's like telling your kids not to eat the bag of cookies, but then proceeds to only eat half of the bag. But the reality is he still disobeyed what you asked him to do or what you asked her to do. So partial obedience isn't obedience. You can't play around with God that way. He knows your heart. He knows what's really going on. You can't trick him. You can't say, well, Lord, I know I, this is what I'm supposed to do, and you've asked me to do this, and you've commanded me to do this. But you know what? I'm a, I, I know you'll forgive me. I know that even if I, you know, you've taken advantage of the Lord. Really, that's what you're really doing. You're taking advantage of his grace, of his forgiveness. That's not what he died for. Yes, he died to forgive you. No doubt about it. But what are you, what does it say about you when you're taking advantage of that? When you're trying to cut corners and you're partially obeying him. We're told in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands, listen, it says, is a liar and the truth is not in him. And lastly, unlike Saul, when others confront us, those that we trust and care about, those who know our spiritual walk, those who have been with us through the ups and downs, even, yes, your spouse, best friend, whoever it may be, if they confront you about a sin that's in your life, you mustn't try to justify it or even to blow it off. The right thing to do is just to take responsibility for it. Stop trying to justify it. or try to Stop trying to find even Bible verses that will justify your sin. That's not what God's word is for. That's not what it's supposed to do. Again, abusing it, taking advantage of his word for your own purposes to justify your sin. And so another question I want to ask you is, what is your usual first response when you're confronted with sin? That will say a lot about what's going on really in your heart. Don't be like Saul. Don't try to justify, oh, well, you know, I waited on the Lord, and well, I waited and you didn't come, so I had to take care of this. 
the troops were deserting me and, and I had to take care of it. I couldn't wait any longer. Still sin. No matter how you put it, no matter how you try to look at it, justify it in God's eyes, it's still sin. And if you're still in that sin and you haven't asked forgiveness, you need to do that as quickly as possible, as soon as possible, before it continues to break that relationship or fracture that relationship that you have with the Lord. Because it doesn't take long before you just start walking away and saying and giving up. Church, chapter 13 is about learning to trust God. Trusting Him when you see your own resources slipping away. When you th- and when you think, even, and even when you think your resources are sufficient. When you think you can handle it all alone. That is perhaps when we need to look at Him more completely. Okay, so now let's move on to chapter 14. And then actually I'm going to begin with the last verse of chapter 13 and then continue on from there. Now, a Philistine garrison took control of the passive mishmash. Okay, we read that. That same day, Saul's son Jonathan said to the attendant who who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. Saul was staying under the promegranate tree in Migron on the outskirts of Gibeah. The troops with him numbered about 600. Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, was also there. He was the son of Ahitub, the brother of Ichabod, son of Phinehas, son of Eli the Lord's priest at Shiloh. But the troops did not know that Jonathan had left. There were, there were sharp columns of rock on both sides of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross, the, to, to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. One was named Bozes and the other Senna. One took to the north in front of Michmash, the other to the south in front of Gibba. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. His armor bearer responded, do what is in your heart. You choose. I'm right here with you, whatever you decide. All right, Jonathan replied. We'll cross over to the men and then let them see us. If they say, wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up, come on up, then we will go up because the Lord has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. They let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison. And the Philistine said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've been hiding. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up. 
and we will teach you a lesson, they said. Follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. Jonathan cut them down and his armor bearer followed and finished them off. In the first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in, half, in a half acre field. Terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields and the open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth, the earth shook and terror spread from God. When Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, they saw the panicking troops scattering in every direction. So Saul called to the troops with him. So Saul said to the troops with him, call the roll and determine who has left us. They called the roll and saw that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Saul told Ahijah, bring the ark of God, for it was, for it was with the Israelites at the time. While Saul spoke to the priest, the panic in the Philistine camp increased in intensity. So Saul said to the priests, stop what you're doing. Saul and all the troops with him assembled and marched to the battle. And there the Philistines were fighting against each other in great confusion. There were Hebrews from the area who had gone early into the camp to join the Philistines, but even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelite men who had been hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also joined Saul and Jonathan in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Chapter 14 teaches us two powerful lessons that we must heed and obey if we want the blessing of God on our lives and service. And the first lesson is found here in this first section that we just read. And it's this, faith in God brings victory. Seeing his father wasn't doing anything about the threat. Jonathan slipped away with his attendant who carried his weapons. In other words, his armor bearer to attack the Philistines. To be clear though, he wasn't, this wasn't just a brash stunt or a foolish suicide mission. He was trusting in God and was looking to him to provide great victory. The way he saw it, the way uh, Jonathan saw it, it didn't matter that it was just the two of them. He felt confident in the possibility that the Lord would help them. Jonathan understood that nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And maybe he had in mind the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. There Gideon was a reluctant warrior 
who felt inadequate for the task that God had called them to do. Basically, to deliver Israel from the Midianite oppression. But in obedience, he rallied 32,000 men to fight against the enemy. However, the Lord then whittled down the army to just down to just 300 men. Humanly speaking, it would be impossible to defeat the enemy forces with just 300 men, with so few. But that was precisely God's point. He alone would achieve the victory and receive the glory. When the odds are against you, that doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. Stand your ground and keep your eyes on him. Trust your heavenly father and you'll be amazed at what he will achieve and then glorify him. Giving thanks for his faithfulness. And I also have no doubt that Jonathan's confidence was boosted even higher when he heard his arm bear essentially say, you know what, bro? I got your back. I trust you. I got you. He heard that and it just boosted his confidence. I believe that if a leader, whether it's at the church or even at home, if he is to lead effectively, he needs armor bearers like this to stand by his side regardless of the outcome, regardless of what happens. You allow that leader to make a decision and you stand by him, whether it fails or whether it succeeds, because you know that he's trusting in the Lord and that he knows that the Lord is in charge regardless of the outcome. The Lord will always be in charge regardless of the outcome. And if God, if that's who God called you to be for now, be that armor bearer. These leaders need you. A lot of times they feel alone. I'm blessed to have people here that I can go to, that I can rely to, that rely on, that have told me, yeah, whatever you, whatever you decide, I'm with you. Whatever your heart is, I, I, you know, I trust that. I'm with you. I got your back. That is such a great feeling. And New Living Translation puts Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6 like this. Many will say they are loyal friends, but who can find one who is truly reliable? Well, Jonathan's faith was rewarded when God showed him that he'd have success if the Philistines taunted him to come up to their camp. And so when they heard that invitation, when they heard that the Philistines were actually telling them to come up to the camp, they were like, yeah, this is going to be a great day. God is wonderful. God is good. God is good. And it says that in verse, it says in verse 13 that he climbed up and cut them down 
while his armor bearer followed and finished them off. And one thing I, I just noticed right now too, as I was reading this again, is that notice how they were climbing out of their holes, out of, their, out of those places. It was a big rocky area. So to get from there to where they were at, they had to crawl and scrape through those rocks. It wasn't an easy path, but they fought on and they, they knew that the Lord was going to give them a victory. And they could have easily said, no, those rocks are too sharp and it's too much and it's just better for us to walk walk away. No, they, they knew that the Lord was going to deliver them. By the time the bat, that battle was over, that first part of the battle, both of them had struck down about 20 men in a half-acre field. And just to give you guys a little bit of a perspective of what half an acre is, it's about the size of a football field, half of a football field, a little less than half of a football field. And as the survivors fled, the Philistines became terrified because of what those two men had done. And then God sent an earthquake. And when that happened, they became terrified of him. You see, the faith that Jonathan and his armor bearer had and acted on was all God needed to deal with the Philistines. Now when Saul's watchmen noticed the confusion and reported it to Saul, instead of attacking the enemy, he stayed back. He was like, hey, what's going on over there? How come, who is that? So instead of joining his son, he did two pointless things. First, he decided to take roll call to find out who was missing. And when he discovered that the only two people that weren't accounted for were Jonathan and his armor bearer, it probably just really irritated him. How could they? How could Jonathan act so independently, so on his, so much on his own? How could he just, you know, make me look bad? Now he's going to get all the glory and fame. So again, it probably irritated him. And as we continue to read more about, about Saul, we're going to see that he was the kind of person who didn't like it when others got the credit, the fame, or the glory. The other pointless thing he did was to tell Ahijah, the priest, to immediately go and to bring the ark so that he can get a blessing, so that he can inquire of the Lord, so that he can find out, so he can seek the Lord. By doing this, Saul was probably just trying to look spiritual, play the part. Yeah, I'm seeking God. I'm going to go get the ark, and we're going to seek him first, and then we're going to go fight. But there really wasn't anything to seek God about since he had already done all the work. God already provided the victory. See, there are times when it's important to step aside and pray, but there are also times when you must act on faith. 
And it appears that Saul didn't know what time that was. Not only that, but it now appears that since his fallout with Samuel at Gilgal, he now had another priest who wouldn't question his actions, who wouldn't say what you did was foolish, what you did was stupid, who would just follow his orders unquestionably. But before the priest left, Saul noticed that the panic in the Philistine camp it had intensified. So he changed his mind and told the priest, you know what, stop what you're doing. By doing this, even if he was being sincere about it, he was basically telling that priest, never mind, I got this. Uh, you don't need to bring the ark. I got this. And so convinced he now, he no longer needed divine, divine guidance. Saul rallied his forces and marched to the battle. And all those men who had previously defected began to fight, to fight the Philistine, their Philistine masters. And even those who had been hiding in the mountains came out to join the battle. It's interesting that now everyone wants to fight when victory is pretty much certain. All right, well, let me finish this then. First Samuel chapter 14. The battle extended beyond Beth-Avon, and the men of Israel were worn out that day, for Saul had placed the troops under an oath. The man who eats food before evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies, is cursed. So none of the troops tasted any food. Everyone went to the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the troops entered the forest, they saw the flow of honey, but none of them ate any of it, because they feared the oath. However, Jonathan had not heard his father make the troops swear the oath. He reached out with the end of his staff he was carrying and dipped it into the honeycomb. When he ate the honey, he had renewed energy. Then one of the troops said, your father made the troops solemnly swear, the man who, ates, who eats food today is cursed, and the troops were exhausted. Jonathan replied, my father has brought trouble to the land. Just look at how I have, I have renewed energy because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the troops had eaten freely today from the plunder they took from their enemies. Then the slaughter of the Philistines would have been much greater. The Israelites struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash all the way to Ajalon. Since the Israelites were completely exhausted, they rushed to the plunder took sheep, goats, cattle, and calves, slaughtered them on the ground, and ate meat with, with blood still in it. Some reported to Saul, look, the troops are sinning against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. Saul said, you have been unfaithful. Roll a large stone over here at once. 
He then said, Go among the troops and say to them, Let each man bring me his ox or his sheep. Do the slaughtering here, and then you can eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with the blood in it. So every one of the, every one of the troops brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had built an altar to the Lord. Saul said, Let's go down after the Philistines tonight and plunder them until morning. Don't let even one remain. Do whatever you want, the troops replied. But the priest said, let's approach God here. So Saul inquired of God, should I go after the Philistines? Will you hand them over to Israel? But God did not answer him that day. Saul said, all you leaders of the troops, Come here, let us investigate how this sin occurred today. As surely as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, even if it's because of my son Jonathan, he must die. Not one of the troops answered him. So he said to all Israel, You will be on one side, and I will, and I and my son Jonathan will be on the other side. And the troops replied, Do whatever you want. So Saul said to the Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If the unrighteousness is in me or in my son Jonathan, Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if the, faith, if the fault is in your people of Israel, give Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were selected, and the troops were cleared of the charge. Then Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was selected. Saul commanded him, tell me what you did. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little of the honey with the end of my staff that I was carrying. I am, a, I am ready to die. Saul declared to him, may God punish me and do it so severely if you do not die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die? Who, who accomplished a great must Jonathan, must Jonathan die who accomplished such a great deliverance for Israel? No, as the Lord lives, not a hair on his head will fall on the ground, for he worked with God's help today. So the people redeemed Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul gave up the pursuit of the Philistines, and the Philistines resumed, returned to their own country. When Saul assumed the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies in every direction against Moab, against the Ammonites, Edom, and the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he caused havoc. He fought bravely, bravely, defeated the Amalekites, and rescued Israel from those who plundered them. Saul's sons were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchishua. The names of his two daughters were Merib, and his firstborn, and Michael, the younger, the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, daughter of Ahimaz. The name of the commander of his army was Abner, son of Saul's uncle Ner. Saul's father was Kish. Abner's father was Ner, son of Abiel. The conflict with the Philistines was fierce all of Saul's day. So whenever Saul noticed any strong or valiant men, he enlisted them. The Bible tells us that the spiritual conditions of our hearts reveal not only 
uh, are revealed not only by the actions we perform, but also by the words we speak. And Jesus also affirmed this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, by saying, for the mouth speaks the, from the overflow of the heart. When you read King Saul's words recorded in Scripture, they often reveal a heart controlled by pride, foolishness, and deceit. He would say foolish things just to impress people with his spirituality, when in reality he was walking far from the Lord. We'll hear it in this section is a good example of that. Now in verses 24 and 25, there it informs us that prior to this battle, Saul had commanded all his men to make an oath that they wouldn't eat until they had defeated the Philistines, until he had taken vengeance on his enemy. Then to ensure compliance, he sealed his order by adding that if anyone did eat, they'd be cursed. To begin with, this shows that Saul's sense of authority was completely wrong. It was wrong because he didn't have the authority to proclaim such a curse. You see, he wasn't the spiritual leader of the nation. Samuel was. He was the only, Samuel was the only one with that spiritual authority to declare it fast and attach a curse to it. But even then, in spite of that, the men of Israel kept their oath and didn't eat any food. And even though they were worn out and hungry from all the fighting, they still refused to even eat any of the honey that they saw that had been flowing from the ground. But Jonathan never got the message. Remember, he was gone fighting when Saul had declared this. And so when he saw the honey himself coming from the ground, well, he naturally ate some. He was hungry. He was tired, too. And he just ate, just, he just dipped the, the tip of his staff, his cane or whatever stick, just and tasted it. And when he did, it says that he had renewed energy, this energy from the Lord. Now, obviously, this honey was meant to bless the troops in order to give them the strength they needed to keep fighting, keep fighting, keep, you know, don't get tired and, and just keep going after the Philistines. But Saul had robbed them of that blessing. Who knows? Maybe they could have that day, if they had, had they ate that honey, they could have permanently, permanently got rid of that Philistine problem once and for all. That Philistine problem that they're going to continue to have even throughout David's reign. And if so, if Saul had robbed them of that blessing, he alone is to blame for that missed opportunity. His troops were just remaining remaining faithful to the vow they made. And I think Jonathan really understood this and why he seemed so heartbroken that Israel's triumph had been hindered by such a stupid order. 
Well, we then see that after the battle was won, was won, instead of rejoicing in the strength of the Lord, the exhausted troops were consumed with hunger. And so even though Leviticus chapter 17 said that it was wrong, that they shouldn't have done this, they took the Philistine animals, slaughtered them, and basically ate them raw. Ate them raw with the blood still inside of them, still in it. And this alarmed Saul so much that he hastily built an altar on which to offer a proprietary sacrifice to the Lord. He's like, whoa, this has gone too far. I need to, we need to ask God to forgive us. After he did this in his zeal, he wanted to continue to pursue the Philistines into the night. So again, he talked to the priests about consulting God. Hey, let's go find out what God has to say about this. But listen again to what it says at the end of verse 37. God did not answer him that day. Why not? Because Saul's relationship with the Lord wasn't what it should have been. See, he thought the Lord was silent because someone else had sinned. But rather than looking to himself, rather than looking at the mirror as the one responsible for God's silence, he called for an investigation so he could have someone else to blame. He was so intent that he was right about this, that he even swore to God that even if the culprit was his son, Jonathan, he must die. And so just as he had done, just as it had been done another occasion, the lot was brought out. And to Saul's surprise, Jonathan was selected. Yes, God could have changed the results, but there was a purpose behind this. See, he wanted to bring the whole thing out in the open and humiliate the king whose pride had caused the problem to begin with. Well, Jonathan explained what happened and Saul, to save face, ordered him to be put to death. He ordered his son to be executed. In that moment, Jonathan was a victor, was a victim he was a victim of his own father's poor leadership. The people, however, showed more sense than their king by advocating on behalf, on behalf of Jonathan. They refused to bow to the king's wishes, saying in verse 45, As the Lord lives, not a hair on his head will fall to the ground. They knew that God had worked that he had worked through God's with God's help that day and that he wasn't working against the Lord. And because of them, because of the people, he did not die. Jonathan lived. The great victory that the Lord accomplished through Jonathan would have been even greater had Saul used wisdom and sound judgment. But unfortunately, like Saul, a lot of carnal and incompetent leaders have done the same thing. They've reduced the full extent of God's work because, of, because they've made foolish decisions. 
Furthermore, as Saul engaged in trivial matters, the Philistines took off. They went back home only to eventually rebuild their their army, their military. For the second time now, his lack of wisdom had diminished victory. Now the last section, again, we see a summary of Saul's military victories and some details concerning his family. I think by now that we can see that Saul will never succeed as Israel's king because of his persistent refusal to accept Yahweh's word. And now that Samuel was absent from the picture and that he had been replaced by another priest, it implies that communication between king and prophet has stopped since God's word and direction for him have become dissatisfying or threatening Saul now has to look to other resources for divine direction this illustrates the biblical truth that God's people are dependent on his word for life and and sustenance but trouble comes when we choose to listen to other voices. This problem began with Adam and Eve when they became dissatisfied with one simple rule, when one simple prohibition, you shall not eat, and exchanged it for the convoluted logic of a stranger in the garden. In this chapter, Saul becomes another illustration of the truths of biblical biblical salvation history. It's this. God's people are not capable of self-rule. You see, although, yes, we've been given free will, he didn't create us to, he didn't create us to make independent choices. He created us to depend on him and to be guided by him. Saul shows us here that when we look to other sources for guidance and direction, it will eventually end in ruin. If you truly love God, and this may be hard to hear, but if you truly love God, then you must, you know that you must look beyond yourself to get direction in every aspect of your life. You know that his word is all you need to set the course for where you must go and what you must do. By definition, God's people, God's people are listening to his way in the full conviction that no other will satisfy. And this chapter also compels us to examine the sources of authority in our own lives. It raises the question, who is the Samuel in your life? Is God at liberty to communicate to you any message he he needs you to hear in order to correct or admonish you? Or have you replaced Samuel with an Ahijah? Have you turned away from what's dependable and true 
because it's something that you don't want to hear? Have you turned instead to hear another word that is more pleasing, that tickles the ear, or more attuned to your personal ambitions or desires? The Bible consistently shows us the folly of turning to any other source. Ladies and gentlemen, the guiding principles in life must be external to our own moral compass. For example, if your, moris, your, your moral compass steers you away from stealing, it's God's word that explains to you, that tells you why you shouldn't steal. Saving faith, therefore, not only is a commitment to God, but, it's also, but it also establishes an external source of guidance to the believer. And so the point I'm making is that as a born-again believer, anything short of divine counsel is self-destructive. On his way to work one day, a man walked past a clockmaker's store. He would stop each day outside and synchronize his watch with the clock that stood on the window of the clockmaker's shop. Observing this routine, the clockmaker one day struck up a conversation with the man and asked him what kind of work he did. The man timidly confessed that he had worked, yet he worked as a timekeeper at the nearby factory and that his malfunctioning watch necessitated daily readjustment. Since it was his job to ring the closing bell every day at 4 p.m., he synchronized his watch with the clock every morning to guarantee precision. The clockmaker, even more embarrassed than the, than the timekeeper, said, I hate to tell you this, but my clock doesn't work very well either. I have been adjusting it to the bell that I hear every afternoon from the factory at 4 p.m. Well... Like Saul, if you turn from God to find another opinion, it will be like, mal like relying on a malfunctioning watch that is timed every day to a, to a bad clock. Rely on God. Rely on resources. Rely on Him to guide you. Who do you trust? Yourself? Do you have the answers? Well... If you haven't found out by now, you'll know that it's not going to lead you anywhere. Why on God? He may show up at 1159, but he will show up. He will. And he will help you and he will deliver you. Just be patient. Thank you so much for visiting us here at Fresh Vision Church. We hope that Pastor Angel's message blessed you this morning. We want to encourage you to spread the gospel by sharing this message through social media. If you want more information about Fresh Vision Church, such as our service time, how to get connected, or you want to hear current or past studies, please visit our website at fvcelp.org. If you're interested in donating to the ministry of Fresh Vision Church, there is a PayPal link in the video description below. Once again, thank you so much for visiting us here at Fresh Vision Church. We pray that you have a blessed week, and we hope to see you again soon.